A podcaster's note. This episode of Where to Begin with Jallo features heavy spoilers of the movie The Pyjama Girl Case from 1977. If you've never seen the movie before or are looking forward to participate by sending a review in of this movie to this series, please pause the show and check out the movie first. However, if you've seen it before, you can continue and listen on. Don't say you weren't warned. Parla l'ispettore Timpson. Mi sto occupando di questo caso. Un crimine senza precedenti per la polizia investigativa di Sydney. Questo fatto di cronaca ha scosso profondamente l'opinione pubblica australiana, anche per il rilievo che la stampa continua a dargli, creando reazioni di curiosità morbosa. Io ne ho abbastanza di stare qui, ispettore. Sì, Tatu. Io non c'entro con questa sporca storia. Una ragazza un po' chiusa, è difficile giudicarla, ma mi sembra incapace di fare del male. E allora perché hai paura? Qualche volta si è comportata in un modo un po' strano. Non sarà mica un caso di gelosia, no? Non si può mai sapere. Adesso non esagerare. Spiegatemi che cosa hanno fatto a mia figlia. Che cosa le hanno fatto? Le nostre città accolgono gente proveniente da ogni parte del mondo. Immigrati in cerca di lavoro, di tranquillità, che lasciano dietro le spalle tristi realtà, che vogliono rifarsi una vita. Ma qui, con il lavoro, con il benessere, spesso ci si ritrova in una disperata solitudine. Le donne come te sono buone solo per scopare. Hai capito? Dai, vattene. Vattene. Vai! Vai! Via! Tu e il tuo dannato figlio di merda, voglio di affogarti! Io non tengo niente, hai capito? Vieni a me! Antonio! Niente! Niente! Ti gonfi la testa con queste stronzate! Finché un giorno non ti gonfieranno la pancia! Dai, un verme schifoso. Che cosa hai fatto a quella ragazza? Maiale. Che cosa gli hai fatto? Rispondi! Non bisogna farsi prendere dalla fretta di trovare un colpevole. A volte, dietro un dettaglio apparentemente insignificante, si nasconde la verità. E io credo di essere sulla strada giusta. Stasera andrò a un appuntamento con l'assassino della ragazza dal pigiama giallo. Another 
Welcome back to another episode of Where to Begin with this season looking through the prism of the subgenre known as the Giallo. You are slowly trundling through into episode number five, the official halfway mark of this series proper. And we have already looked at some phenomenal Gialli in our quest to cover 10 movies that will give you a good foothold, a great grounding in this most sacred and now most revered Italian subgenre. I'm your host Duncan McLeish and throughout these episodes this season I've been trying to put forward a definitive list of 10 movies that I think you need to see when wanting to appreciate and get into Jallo cinema. It's almost like a map, a marauder's map so to speak, charting the various different stops you should take to cover some of the big tomes and ideas covered within the subgenre. Unlike most subgenres, Jallo has its kind of set in stone rules, but variations on a theme throughout. And as the subgenre slowly started to lose its prominence in Italian cinema, circa 74, 75, a wave of curious little oddities started to spring up. Now, these movies were at their core jally of sorts, but were starting to incorporate different styles and some were becoming ludicrously violent, uh, where others went down the more kind of police procedural route and then others went into the realms of the fantastical. The movie we're going to be covering on this episode is one that I only came across recently. In the last two years, I finally got around to checking out The Pyjama Girl Case, a.k.a. The Girl in the Yellow Pyjamas, a little jello from 1977 by Flavio Mogherini. Now, this movie here is very unusual in the world of the giallo. First and foremost because it is not really even related to or set in Italy. This is set in Australia and is based on a case in Australia at the time. It's actually more grounded in the real life murder of uh, a girl who was found severely burned on a beach in Sydney. Now, what is interesting about this particular adaptation is this is one of the the movies that takes a unique turn uh, playing with time, or timelines, so to speak, in the movie. Now, I would like to say there's a whole lot of jallos that come out that play around with the ideas and concept of time. And some do, but not a lot of them. To be honest, this one here is a great example of a director and a studio trying to do something a little bit different, a little bit against the norm, to maybe have some sort of sleeper success and get their movie out. 77 is a very important year in Italian horror cinema. It's the year of Suspiria, um, a movie which, for all intents and purposes, kind of resets and calibrates everything in Italian cinema in a completely different light. Because up until that point, you are looking at a 
country whose genre cinema has featured mostly kind of plays on hammer horror into this kind of crime rooted murder slasher well proto slasher subgenre it's already started to morph into more kind of police procedural stuff so you get a whole rung of really interesting movies that have come out and these are all just the genre stuff that's not counting the fact that spaghetti westerns have kind of taken over the world at this point hugely profitable have made big names and big stars that when Suspiria comes along by Dario Argento, the man that we spoke about way back at the beginning of this series with Burdett and the Crystal Plumage, he has taken a swing at many giallos up to that point and then creates what is considered a dark fairy tale horror masterpiece of epic proportions. From that point, the Italian genre of horror cinema kind of explodes outwards within a year and a bit. Zombie Flesh Eaters, aka Zombie, will take the world by storm. And then once again, we will get a whole new rung of these kind of replicas, these plays on essentially Dawn of the Dead. On top of that as well, you're going to get a ton of kind of sci-fi inspired horror movies a la Alien. You're going to get a big push into the Italian cannibal subgenre off the back of the weird success and notoriety of Cannibal Holocaust. So the world as we know is changing for this cinema. And that's what makes the Pajama Girl case such a confusing little oddity. Now I have read plenty of reviews um, from from people, academics, who maybe don't necessarily consider this movie to be an out-and-out giallo. And I can see where they're coming from, but I've always felt that its influences are so profound and so upfront that whilst maybe the mechanisms in place don't hit all those glorious beats that we've spoken about in the previous episodes, there's enough here to hang your hat on and constitute a giallo. First and foremost, it's probably got one of the better mysteries of the subgenre as a whole. I found the first time I watched this movie, which like I said was a couple of years ago when I picked up the Arrow video Blu-ray, that I couldn't anticipate the reveal. I didn't know where the movie was going. And that's a lot to do with the fact that we have two timelines kind of playing around here that will ultimately intersect and give a reveal which I still think is one of the the more kind of unique aha moments in watching a movie. On top of that as well, I think where it has a a unique difference to a lot of the movies, even the ones that did have a bit of jet setting, is the landscape of Australia doesn't exactly lend itself to the themes of the jally. I mean, when you think of Jalo, you think trend setting, you think beautiful architecture, you think of high couture and fashion. And no offence to our Australian listeners, but that's not exactly what Australia is known for. So when you kind of put these elements, when you're stripping back the, the elegance and the beauty and the, you know, the scenery, you're also stripping back a lot of the tropes, no real black glove killer here, so to speak. If you're taking all these elements out, what are you actually left with that makes it a giallo? 
and it's the mystery. It's the murder mystery aspect of this movie which unabashedly leans in towards that specific genre. And like I said before, I think there are a few movies that capture that idea as good as The Pyjama Girl Case. But let's not get too far away from things here. This movie may not necessarily embrace all those jalo tropes that we have covered so diligently in the four episodes prior and that you will now easily have come to respect and love. The movie does still have the flair of the best of Jalo cinema. The cinematography is kind of incredible, even though you you don't have the, the rustic charm of a kind of rural Italian town or the the pomp and circumstance of, you know, um, like, like a, a Roman marketplace. But what you do have here is amazing tracking so- shots, a, a movie and a director who really leans into what a lot of directors have done since time in memoriam with shooting in Australia is the the real use of that landscape and beauty as a tool to drive a narrative. Now, this original crime is far more appalling than this movie shows. The movie changes quite a lot. The original case uh, was about a a girl who was found not only beaten and shot and burned with the only article of clothing left on the Sydney beach being those uh, yellow pyjamas in the 30s and brings it to the 70s, modernises it, changes location and it follows in a lot of respects, almost a Twin Peaksian sort of the fall of a Laura Palmer sort of character. This um, has the the simplicity but also the complexity to use two conflicting timelines. One involving a very disgruntled and retired police officer who's kind of brought back... Um, to help assist on a case, even though he's kind of worn and torn and and out, basically out, <laughs> you know, doesn't want back in. These cops don't have the keen intellect that this man has. You know, the instinct that only years and years of looking at the worst gnarly shit on the planet will force you to to anticipate. In some ways, not sympathise, but you you get a degree of kind of a weird reflex to start to understand how people or why people do certain things. So he's brought back to consult on this case and he's essentially investigating this body that's been found kind of badly beaten and, and, and kind of murdered. And whilst all this is happening, we are we are telling the story of another girl and her events with a very abusive partner um, and whilst these stories feel independent of each other, there is a point where they intersect and there is that aha, aha moment. Uh, the movie has an incredible score by Ritz Ortolioni, who himself was a man that you know scored several of the Jally, but more notably are 
more famously is known for his work on uh, Cannibal Holocaust, one of the most kind of prominent and haunting scores of all time on that one with his kind of faux mondo style of score over the top of that movie. He, he delivers a, a really kind of flavourful, rich score against the back of this movie, which just adds to its chops. Now, uh, sometimes I like to spoil movies, and other times I don't. And I could say that it would be very easy to give away all the details to this movie here, but I get a feeling that some of the movies I've mentioned thus far are essentially for you movies that you will know of, or either own or will have seen before and I'm going to hedge my bets here that The Pyjama Girl Case is a movie that you may never have heard of or may never have seen and with that in mind rather than completely spoil the ending I'd be interested to hear your reviews uh, later on in the month when we return to, to kind of move on to the next movie in the series but more importantly recap your thoughts on it. So I'm going to hold back on that a little bit because I don't want to necessarily spoil that reveal for you and get your views on it. Suffice to say, I think the ending is powerful, strong, it's a bit of a gut punch um, and kind of solidifies the movie as this horribly tragic um, event that kind of unfolds before you in a way where once you understand what the movie is doing, um, you're basically, in a lot of respects, following the tropes of that Twin Peaks movie. It's why I mentioned it earlier on, of the, the kind of final days and the downfall of a character. Uh, I think it has a bit of weight because of that, and I think it works really, really well. Now, like I say, I've got the Arrow video version. I'm not sure who released this in the States. It may have been Arrow. This may be one that was released in both territories, but certainly in the UK it's available. And I would recommend you go and check it out. I don't think this is a hard to find one. So I think if you're, you know, even if you're in the States, you'll be able to track it down relatively easy. It's not going to be one of these ones that you have to buy a, like a out-of-print DVD, which is going to cost you five times the amount of what the movie itself actually costs. So you should be able to land it fairly reasonable. But yeah, I love it. I think it's, I think it's a great example of where the genre ultimately ends up. Um, and this kind of weird flux of not quite where it started, not quite something else, but taking on board that Jalo itself as a, as a genre slowly started to become more about the police procedural aspect and less about the kind of murder mystery and then ultimately just became police procedural movies. And this movie kind of exists in that, that bubble. It doesn't have much of a body count really at all, so it doesn't you know, satiate that bloodlust that you have as a, a, a Jalo fan. It doesn't really have like a lurid amount of kind of almost on some level perverse obsession with with violence on women like the other ones are. The violence on women here just pretty unpleasant, if I'm honest. Uh, but it does have that kind of unabashed eye and beautiful score, and a grandiose feel, this movie feels like a lot more money was spent on it than was actually spent on it to tell this story. Interestingly enough, Argento himself would do something similar in Sleepless, which is a movie that came kind of post-2000, where he would actually use 
some of the ideas and tropes of the Pajama Girl case in his telling of that one. Now, sadly, Sleepless will not be covered in this series. Um, it is definitely a giallo, but it's so late day, it's not one that I feel I could comfortably recommend in this series. But yeah, I think you should go and check it out for sure. I look forward to hearing your reviews and I'll give you more details on those reviews and how you can get involved with the work that we are doing here on Where to Begin with Jallo by submitting a review in later this month on episode number six. Before we get to that though, let's kind of recap where we were after episode number four where I covered the movie Spasmo and I put out to you guys to submit reviews in for that movie. So with that in mind, we'll turn our attention to the listener reviews. And only one review in on this episode is an audio review and it comes from long-time collaborator, long-time friend, an awesome all-round bloke, David Garrett Jr., who has this to say about Spasmo. Hello, Duncan and... T Puts Collective listeners, David Garrett Jr. here again for this month's selection of Spasmo. Now, this is a first-time watch for me, as I never even actually heard about this one until I got into listening to podcasts, and it would just kind of pop up when people were talking about not only the director, Umberto Lindsay, but kind of when you're starting to dive more into the Giallo films, kind of like the whole process of this show. And, but... Lindsay is actually a director that I didn't have a whole lot of experience with. I will admit, I did grow up watching Nightmare City as my dad is really into zombie films, and he had picked it up on VHS, and my sister and I used to watch it all the time. Outside of that, since I got into podcasts, I did watch Cannibal Ferox as well as Black Demons, which I'm not really the biggest fan of the latter two. I think Cannibal Ferox is all right, but that's kind of just my background information with this director. Now, this film is kind of interesting as it isn't a traditional, like, giallo film where we don't necessarily have a black glove killer, but we do have a character of Christian who kind of has a journey of trying to figure out if he's going crazy or not, as he doesn't think he is because he is hanging out with his girlfriend who is Xenia, and they end up encountering a woman named Barbara who is played by the lovely Susie Kendall. And he ends up hanging out with Barbara quite a bit, and this lures a assassin after him by the name of Tatum, which Christian thinks he kills this assassin, but when he goes back, he can't find the body. And from there, this is just a giant plot where Christian, as well as Barbara, try to figure out what is going on here. And they end up encountering like a character named Malcolm who starts to think that everything is happening is all inside Christian's head. And it makes us wonder that as well because all of the evidence, we get to see it through his eyes, but we don't necessarily know if that's what is really going on here. But one of my big things with Giallo films for me is if I can figure out the mystery too early, I do tend to not be a biggest fan of that. So I will give credit here is that I had no idea what was going on until probably maybe like 15 or 20 minutes left in the movie. But I do kind of feel like this one falls into one of those where it's kind of a cheat as we don't really get to meet Fritz until near the end. We do hear his name because it does appear that Christian usually goes to him when he needs help. So, I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of that, but I do like that Fritz wants to make 
Christian think he's crazy, so he has to be committed to a mental institution because it sounds like they have a family history of schizophrenia. Now, the problem here, though, is that Fritz thinks his brother's crazy, but he's crazy as well, which I did think that was kind of a cool angle because the whole movie, we keep getting to see these sex dolls that are in lingerie and they're just being placed in random areas where they've been stabbed or they've been hung or, you know, a combination of the two. What I think is interesting is that it turns out that Fritz is also having this hereditary issue of schizophrenia, and that is his way of dealing with it, which I guess it's better than what Christian's doing because it seems like for the longest time that there aren't any deaths happening, but we end up realizing that we're not seeing them happen, but Christian is actually murdering many of these women that he's come and encountered with which includes, like, Xenia and the woman he meets in the car, as well as Barbara herself. And I kind of think this is kind of a cool way to play it, as I said, because we really don't get that black glove killer, so we do... And he's not, I mean, he's not even actually stabbing most of his victims, but that is something I kind of think they're incorporating back with Fritz. I do wish we got to see more of the deaths on screen, though, as we really don't have much in the way of effects. And this movie isn't, I guess, sleazy in the technical term, but we are getting that the killer does have some sexual deviant nature to him, and that's, I think, where they're kind of incorporating back into there. Aside from that, I did think the acting was pretty good. I thought that Hoffman does very well at playing this character where we think he's sane, but the more and more that we learn about him, the more and more that we see that he might actually be crazy. I've already kind of, on this show for The Bird of the Crystal Plumage, said how I'm a big fan of Kendall and just find her to be quite attractive. Rasimov shows up later in the movie. I thought he was fine. I thought the acting, though, does really well in kind of moving the story along and keeping everything entertaining, because that's one thing I will say. I never got bored with this movie, which is usually a big perk for me. The other thing I kind of have to talk about before we move away from this is that I love the Morricone score that we get here. Some of the times I'm actually kind of losing interest in the scene at times, just listening to his music and kind of getting lost in that. So that was a big perk for me. I was a big fan there. But I don't want to make it seem like, like I said, that I was bored or anything, because I did end up enjoying this mystery and kind of how everything played out. That's really all I wanted to cover for this movie. I really did enjoy it, Duncan, so I'm glad that you selected it, because this has been on my list for some time. I just hadn't got around to watching it yet. So I came in for this movie with an 8 out of 10. And I'm also excited because the next movie, The Pajama Girl Case, is another one that I haven't seen before, but I have heard about it, and I am pretty excited there. Well, once again, thank you, Duncan, for doing these shows. I'm excited that you gave me an opportunity to watch this. Can't wait to hear what the other people who checked this movie out thought about it as well, as well as for the next episode. So this is David Garrett Jr. signing off. And thanks very much to our buddy David Garrett Jr. for submitting in that review for Spasmo. Now I am led to believe that our buddy Kate Pollock will be sending one in as well and it may arrive in time for the next episode. But we need to continue our journey on. So you guys have uh, now the, the mission to go away and check out the Pajama Girl case. Now, you don't have as much time as you did before because, sadly, this episode was delayed about two and a half weeks. So what we'll do is we'll probably aim for end of the month for this. And what we'll say is that we need to get our reviews in for Monday 24th of August. So that gives you about three weeks. Monday 24th of August reviews in for the Pajama Girl case. That episode will drop on Friday the 28th of August. So, yeah, get your reviews in for Monday 24th August. Episode goes out Friday 28th 
August. The Pajama Girl Case. You can submit it in to our email address, which is either podcastunderthestairs at gmail.com. I know some people still like to send it to that one, or you can send it to teaputzcollective at gmail.com. If you're friends with me on Facebook, just send it to me there. You can send it in a direct message for sure. And if you've checked it out before and you have a little letterbox review for it, then just ping that over and I'll happily read it out on the episode. Where are we going next though, ladies and gents? In episode number six, we're tackling one of the more obscure, but I will tell you right now, one of the more exciting movies. It came out the year before The Pajama Girl Case, and this is The House with Laughing Windows, co-written and directed by Pupi Avati. Um, This guy, oh, what a guy. He's still releasing movies. He actually released a Jalo last year which I still have not checked out, but I heard kind of mixed reviews of that was maybe interesting, but maybe not necessarily of the same level of this. Um, What's really funny about this one is this movie didn't come out to much fanfare at all, but has really found a niche among cinephiles, particularly those uh, in, in kind of prominent places. Both Eli Roth and Quentin Tarantino speak very highly of the house with laughing windows and it scores relatively high from reviewers that have checked it out. So yeah, that is the one we will be tackling next. The house with laughing windows. That episode, like I say, will drop on Friday the 28th of August and you need to get your reviews in for the Pajama Girl case for Monday 24th. Once again, thank you to everyone who has been submitting in reviews, David Garrett Jr. on this episode, but checking out these shows and giving me a bit of love on the work we're doing here. Uh, We're officially over the halfway mark now, so we are kind of winding it down, but we have some phenomenal heavy hitters before this show finishes in December. We take a small break and then come back with a brand new Where to Begin With season. I hope you're all checking out the shows on the Teapots Collective. A lot of hard work goes into the other shows that are there, whether it's Chronicle, looking currently in its carnation just now, um, on a little bit of folk horror cinema, um, specifically uh, the, the European stuff. And we're using folk horror through the lens of British cinema for this season, or whether it's Opera Omnia doing its fine work looking at filmographies by directors in season one, looking at Ben Wheatley, or whether it's continuing our, what can only be described as Herculean task of going through the Section 3 movies and the video nasty list in the show Doing the Nasty. All those shows are, you know, recorded by myself, edited by myself, and released for your entertainment for free. So the best way to show that love is feedback on iTunes, or subscribing to the feed itself. You can also check me out over on my main show, Podcast Under the Stairs. It can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. And with that, that brings us to the end of another episode. But remember, very much like the giallo subgenre, anyone could be the killer. Even you. This is Duncan McLeish for Where to Begin with Jallo, and I'll speak to you all at the end of the month. <laughs>